Welcome to Shetland with Laurie, a podcast dedicated to Shetland, the place and the people, with me, Laurie Goodland, a writer and tour guide based at 60 degrees north. The Shetland with Laurie podcast is for people who have visited Shetland, or who would like to visit, or for those who would just like to know a little bit more about life here. So welcome, I'm so glad you're here. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I think that we're on episode 18 of season 2 and today it's just me again. I still haven't interviewed anybody for the podcast but hopefully next week I'll be back to interviewing someone special to get on. But today I'm going to look at some of the ways that you can enjoy Shetland on foot. So some of the some of my favourite walks that you can do when you're able to visit whether it's this summer or whether you just want to add these suggestions to your wish list for when it's safe and you're allowed to travel once more. So hopefully there'll be something in here for everyone to enjoy. Um, Shetland sits in almost a, a liminal space between the North Atlantic and the North Sea so it's quite dramatic and rugged and at this time of year it's really coming into its best. We're approaching my favourite month which is June. Um, We're just coming into May at the moment but June for me is definitely my favourite. It's it's one that casts the islands in almost perpetual light. We have midsummer, the the summer dim as it's known here and it's just a, a really special time of year and especially now as we're coming into May and the nights are getting longer then we can start thinking about going on more walks and kind of enjoying the enjoying the daylight a bit more. So as I said, Shetland is between the North Sea and the North Atlantic. We're about 200 miles north of Aberdeen. Um, 200 miles to the east is Norway. So we're quite far flung and remote, but we're very accessible and connected. And getting to Shetland is easy. You can arrive by boat or plane and the boat journey takes between 12 and 14 hours from Aberdeen and the plane journey is an hour from Aberdeen. So we're, we're very well connected despite being an isolated island community. So this time of year I'm recording on the eve of May 1st. So we're beginning to see the return of our nesting seabirds and the cacophony of sound that they bring with them each summer. And the wildflowers are beginning to come to life and they'll give a really vibrant show that lifts the landscape later in the year. The lambs are coming and you may have seen on my Instagram stories this week that I have an orphan caddy lamb in my care at the moment. So... <laughs> who knows how that'll end up but we're just looking after her while while she needs to be kind of hand fed so she gets a bottle every two to three hours at the moment and in May the foals will be arriving in time for the finer days of summer so it's a really a really good time of year and there's so many fantastic walks in Shetland and we enjoy great freedom to explore here so long as we abide by and respect the Scottish Outdoor Access Code and I did a podcast about that in season one so you can refer back to that episode about the Scottish Outdoor Access Code and kind of brush up on your responsibilities for enjoying the outdoors. So I'm just going to highlight a few of my favourite walks and kind of walks that you can do 
when you're here. And one of my favourites is the Aishness Circular up in the, the north of Shetland, the northwest corner. And the rugged cliffs at Aishness are pretty unrivaled in terms of sheer breathtaking beauty, geology and archaeology. And a trip to Aishness is usually high up on many travellers' Shetland adventure bucket list. So Aishness itself is an exposed peninsula in the northwest Shetland mainland. So it's about an hour's drive from Larrick. And to get there, you head north on the A970, basically until the double road ends and you follow the signs for Aishness. And Aishness is right at the end of the road. It's the, the end of the line. And public transport here is quite limited, so I definitely recommend hiring a car or a local guide while you're visiting Aishness. So you park up at the lighthouse for the cliffs and coastal walk. The lighthouse itself that stands on on top of the cliffs was built in 1929 by David and Charles of the famous Lighthouse Stevensons and it's got a 12 metre high tower and it was the last Stevenson built lighthouse that was constructed in Shetland and until 1974 it was manned by a lightkeeper who lived in the accommodation that's adjacent to the light. So the area around Aishness is geologically fascinating. Shetland itself is a UNESCO geopark and the Aishness Peninsula was formed about 360 million years ago when Shetland lay close to the equator and the cliffs at Aishness show kind of a series of lava flows that date back millions of years to a landscape that was formed by these volcanoes, the fire and the lava, so quite a dramatic landscape. And in front of the lighthouse, just kind of beside the car park, you walk in front of the lighthouse, then you'll come to the Cairn of Slettons, which is a blowhole, and it plunges vertically into the sea below. It's a feature that's thought to have been a side vent or cone in what was once the Aishness volcano which is now extinct or, or dormant, whatever you want to say. And the coastline at Aishness is said to be the best example of a, a section through the flank of a volcano anywhere in the UK. So it's really well worth the visit. So from here, looking out to sea to the northwest, you can see a small island, Mokolosa it's called, which is the solidified lava vent channel which would have fed the main vent of the volcano and on a clear day from here you can also see the Clare oil field which is 47 miles west of Shetland. So from here you can walk along Caldersgio or Caldersgio we would say Caldersgio which runs parallel to the road in the car park so you're Along here you're tracing the perimeter of an old sea cave that has seen the collapse of the roof creating a long narrow gyo, which is the Shetland name for a cleft in the rock. So it's just a, a long kind of narrow um, fault leading inland. And there's a, a cave at Calder's Gyo, which you can just see the entrance to the cave down at sea level. You can see see that there's a it just looks like a small cave but actually 
It's said to be Britain's largest sea cave and a recent scientific study of the inner chambers here found that the true dimensions of the cave were far greater than what had previously been thought. And it makes it that the, I think that they, they figured out it was about 60 foot tall and it spanned a floor area of, oh, what was it? Five or six thousand square metres, I think. It was pretty substantial anyway. But it makes it one and a half times bigger than the cave at Chider Gorge in Somerset. So if you fancy you go inside this cave, you'll need a really calm day and a kayak. But if you continue along the Aishness Circular Walk, which you can find online on the Promote Shetland website, you just type in Aishness Circular, then you'll come to the Halls of Scrada, which is another collapsed sea cave. But this one lies 100 metres inland from the sea. And it's called the Halls or Holes because at one time there were two holes. But in the late 19th century, the land bridge, which separated the two, collapsed soon after apparently soon after a horse and cart passed over. So who knows whether that's true, but it's a, it's a good story. So now it's just one large void in the land. And as I said, it's quite inland from the sea, so it's, it's quite unexpected to find um, a big hole in the land where the sea is washing in on, in a kind of stony inland beach. And beyond the Halls of Scrada, lies the Grindadanavar, which is a, a breathtaking natural amphitheatre carved out by the power of the sea. And again, it's been formed by lavas, so it's quite a distinctive reddish pink um, rock and ignimbrite. <laughs> yeah, ignimbrite, I can never pronounce it. Um, so a, a lava rock again. And it's basically happened, it, it's been formed by the sea, which is kind of pushed up it's kind of forced up a ramp on the sea bottom and it's being kind of channeled through a natural U-shaped fissure in the rock. And on a fine day, it frames the Atlantic really, really well and it's a brilliant place to chase a sunset. And on a stormy day, you're really advised to keep well back because the sea really can tear the rocks um, from the cliff face and carry quite large boulders with it and deposit them quite far inland, creating like a, a storm beach. So it's really quite powerful on a stormy day. And there are videos on YouTube that kind of show the the sheer power of the, the sea interacting with the rock here. So it's pretty incredible, but definitely best on a, a calmer day. So from the Grind of the Navar, you will make your way back and you'll go kind of inland coming back and head back towards the Halls of Scrada and you trace the Burner stream up to the Loch of Huland where you pass some old water mills which are similar in style to the Norwegian click mills. And these were used throughout Shetland up until the early 20th century for grinding grain. And beside the loch itself lies the ruins of the Brocha Huland, which is a 2,000-year-old Iron Age um, round tower, which I spoke about brochs in my last podcast, and I'll maybe say a bit more about them later in this one. But it's a, a collapsed broch. It's, there's not, it's, 
it's not standing in the same way that Musa Brock or Klikomenes. It's um, kind of collapsing on itself, creating like a mound in the landscape. But you can still see the, you can still see the Brock walls, and you can see the definite shape of it in the landscape. So Asianus is is fantastic. So from the Brock, the Brocker Holland, you just make your way back to the car park, and this walk takes probably a couple of hours to do two three hours if you really want to kind of make the most of it and definitely one of the, the highlights of any visit to Shetland. Now another fantastic way to experience some really good coastal scenery is through some of Shetland's national nature reserves and my favourites to visit are Nos, Hermanus, and if you don't fancy a kind of longer walk, then Sombrahide. But we'll start by looking at Nos. So Nos National Nature Reserve, to give it its um, full title, sits off Shetland's east coast and it's only accessible throughout the summer months. So it's an island and it's famed for its spectacular scenery, its sheer cliffs and its wildlife and the, obviously the striking landscape um, as well. So it's a really a must-see for any adventure seeker. And the name Nos itself, that comes from the Old Norse language that was spoken here, and it literally means nose. Um, so the, the Norse settlers who arrived here from the 9th century would likely have called it Nossi, um, the island shaped like a nose, if you're giving it its literal translation. And there's two options for a trip to Nos. Uh, Nos is actually quite close to Larrick, so if you want to visit on foot, you first need to take the ferry from Larrick, the main the main town in Shetland. So you get a ferry from Larrick to the island of Bressa, which is just a, a short five-minute hop across Bressa Sound. And then you... Um, go through Bressa to the other side of the island, the east side of the island, and you can get a small boat across to the island. And again, it's, it's just run throughout the summer, so you can only visit Nos during the, the kind of high season here. And alternatively, you have daily boat trips that are operated from Larrick Harbour that will take guests right into the heart of the seabird colonies and this really allows for some really outstanding views from the sea of one of the most significant gannet colonies in the UK. So to visit the island on foot you need to take the ferry, as I said, the ferry across the Bressa um, Bressa itself is home to about 340 people and it makes a, a great day trip if you want to kind of build it into a trip to Nos and visit Bressa too. There's plenty of walks, history, archaeology, there's a, a pub restaurant and a cafe so there's plenty to do if the weather does prevent a trip to Nos. So from Bressa's east side the wardens that are stationed in Nos throughout the summer to kind of take care of the, the seabirds or to monitor the seabirds. <laughs> the birds can take care of themselves. Um, they operate a small rib that will take guests to the to the island which is now uninhabited and it's just a, a three minute journey across Nos Sound and they operate five days a week 
So I think the days off for them are Monday and Thursday throughout the summer season, which is kind of May to late August. And on the island, there's a designated path which will take the visitors to the Nupanos, so that's the high cliffs where the seabird colonies are at, and on a kind of three-hour circular route around the island. So walkers will have the opportunity to view the seabird colonies from the, like, the top of the cliffs there, and they'll see the sandy and boulder beaches that, that we have on Nos. There's the, the moorland in the centre of the island, which is used for grazing sheep, and also um, you'll find nesting great skewers, or bonksies as we call them. And look out for harbour seals and grey seals, which can also be spotted around the shores and Nos. And be sure to keep your eyes peeled for any passing whales who often take a shortcut through the narrow Nos Sound channel. It's quite a quite incredible to see them passing through there and and many visitors are lucky enough to experience this but I'd say that perhaps the best way to experience NOS is on the the boat trips that are organised daily you just get a real sense of the the scale of the cliffs when you're in a boat beneath them and you get really up close and personal to the bird colonies so from the boat you're able to gaze up the 180 metre high cliffs and witness what kind of looks a bit like an apartment block of nesting seabirds. And you're definitely guaranteed not to be disappointed. So the boat trips, another good reason for the boat trips is that they, although they don't allow passengers to land on the island, they do explore the coastline and the caves and the crags and also these tours are wheelchair friendly so um, if you're not able to to do the island walk then certainly the boat trip is a really magical experience, it's fantastic. Now moving on to another um, nature reserve and this one is on Shetland's most northerly island of Unst which is home to several spectacular nature reserves but my favourite is definitely Hermanness which is the most northerly in the UK the most northerly nature reserve and getting to Unst itself is easy Shetland has excellent internal links which are operated by the Shetland Islands Council and have a we have a fleet of inter-island ferries that run between nine of the 16 inhabited islands here. So you begin by getting a ferry over to the island of Yell and then on to Unst. And they're reasonably frequent and booking is not always necessary but it's definitely recommended throughout the summer months. So Hermanus National Nature Reserve is a walk that will take you over vast open moorland to the coastal fringes of Britain's most northerly frontier. So it's quite barren and wild and it really does feel as if you're standing on the edge of the world. It's um, dominated by the imposing Muckleflugga Lighthouse, which is precariously perched on a small rocky island um, just off the the kind of northernmost point at Harmonas. 
and it's um so it's a, a small rocky island and the lighthouse was built again by Thomas Stevenson so the famous Stevenson family again and it's carefully woven into this barren rock and it's stood the test of time it's been there for over 150 years and it's had constant assault from the often quite turbulent North Atlantic and until 1995 it was the most northerly inhabited island it was home to a lighthouse keeper throughout the year and then in 1995 the light became automated and the keeper moved out so it is no longer the most northerly inhabited island although I'm I'm not sure that you could even call it an island that's really kind of stretching it a bit but Shetland's Atlantic coast itself is spectacular and rising to about 170 metres the cliffs, stacks and scarries at Hermanus will really take your breath away it's it's a place that's rich in wildlife. It's a, it feels like a land where the birds rule. And for the keen birder, there are over 100,000 breeding seabirds to watch. So the kind of highlights at Hermanus are definitely the, the puffin colonies that are there. So we've got fantastic puffin colonies at Hermanus and the gannet colonies are really good there. And same as in Nos. Just be sure to keep scanning the, the horizon as you walk in case there's any passing whales or dolphins nearby. So it's really just, it's dramatic, it's sheer, it, it feels kind of it feels kind of otherworldly nearly. It's, it's a really inspiring place. That's just a, a kind of few words that spring to mind when I'm thinking about Hermanus. And as I said, it's puffins that dominate the, the cliff tops and there are plenty of fulmars around um, there's stacks cliffs and on the walk out towards the, the coast you're passing through um, a colony of nesting great skewers so those are the, the bunksies that are quite quite um, predatory they'll feed on other seabirds but in Shetland, we have really important numbers of them. I think we have about 40, 40 or 50 percent, 40 percent, I think, of the, the world's population of these birds. So um, worldwide, their numbers are in danger. But in Shetland, they, they're kind of top of the food chain here. And probably the most astonishing sight beyond the puffins is that the huge colony of gannets. There's about 25,000 breeding pairs who live in just a, a noisy, raucous colony on the outlying rocks. And it's the, the gannets again that you're seeing in Nos when you do, do the trip to Nos. And these are our largest seabirds. They're really impressive to watch. They dive into the sea and just they look like just torpedoes hitting the water. And they're beautiful birds with kind of their eyes look like they've got black eyeliner on. Absolutely stunning birds. And we also have folklore associated with Hermanus. So it's a place of folklore like much of the islands. We've got folklore around every corner. But Hermanus was said to be the home of the giant called Herman. And together with the uh, giant Saxa, 
that uh, reside in and the neighbouring headland of Saxifor, they both are said to have fallen in love with a mermaid who lured them into the sea. And the mermaid challenged them to swim to the North Pole and she promised her affections, basically, to the winner, whoever, whichever giant could swim all the way to the, no- to the North Pole, she would fall in love with them. But unfortunately for Herman and Saxon, neither of them could swim and both were drowned, leaving this wild, remote area to the birds. And the walk itself out to Hermanus is aided by a, a boardwalk, a wooden boardwalk that weaves through the moorland before it kind of before the land kind of opens up to the sea, and so so it's kind of a walk of contrasts. You have the kind of thick moorland, and then it kind of reveals these huge uninterrupted views across just a, a vast nothingness of the North Atlantic. And it's it's quite something to be standing on the edge of the cliffs at Hermanus and just knowing that there is absolutely nothing between you and North America. It's, um, it's really quite special. So that's Hermanus up in Unst. And of all Shetland's nature reserves, Sumbraheide's RSPB um, reserve is probably the most accessible for those who are maybe not keen walkers but those that want to just enjoy some spectacular landscapes and some fantastic views and get up and up close and personal to nature. So Sumbrahide lies on the southernmost point of mainland Shetland and it enjoys commanding views out to sea across the Roost which is a um, renowned for being quite a turbulent stretch of water between um, Sumbrahide and Fair Isle, our most southerly island. So Sumbrahide is home to a huge array of breeding seabirds, including guillemots, shags, fulmers, kittiwakes and puffins, which are always the star of the show. And you can see other birds too. You can see gannets and um, great skewers and terns feeding out at sea. Because the water around Sumbrahide, the, the sea around Sumbrahide, is really rich in um, in fish and all of the, the things that the, the birds are f- kind of fighting over to eat. You have the margin of the, the North Atlantic and the North Sea and it kind of kicks up the sea into a bit of a, a fish soup is what it was once described to me as, as it's kind of the, the margin of these two o- these two bodies of water kind of meet and it churns everything up in the water. So it's really good fishing grounds for the, the seabirds. But as I said, the puffins are really the, the star of the show at Sumbrahide and visitors can literally get within a few feet of these fantastic little seabirds. Um, killer whales and other whales, dolphins, are also frequently seen passing, passing through this area. It's kind of the route that you would go between East and West Shetland, so if they're going around the island then you'll see them passing Sumbrahide. So all in all it's um, really a, a must see for wildlife and as I said if you're not keen on doing any of the walks or you're not able to do any of the walks then this is a, as good a place as any to really enjoy all the wildlife that we have here. But it's not just the wildlife that draws visitors to Sumbrahide. The lighthouse 
dominates the headland and it's played an essential role in Shetland for generations. Again, it was built by those famous Lighthouse Stevensons and Summerhide Lighthouse was completed in 1821. And again, it was lived in by a lighthouse keeper until the light was automated in 1991. And the lightkeeper here lived lived there with his family. So when the Stevenson family arrived to survey the site in 1814, they brought their close family friend with them. And that was Sir Walter Scott, the famous novelist. And his visit to Sumbrahide went on to inspire his novel The Pirate, which is based in and around the south of Shetland. Also, during the Second World War, Sumbrahide played a really prominent role as an early warning radar station. So it was warning of any kind of Nazi movements in the North Sea area. And famously, on the 8th April 1940, Sumbra's radar station was arguably... Um, to change the course of the war as they were able to intercept and prevent a massive Nazi attack on the British um, fleet which was at anchor in Scapa Flow down in Orkney. So it was a really important wartime station too and they have displays up at Sumbrahead that kind of showcase its wartime history as well. So today the lighthouse keeper's accommodation and outlying buildings are part of a complex that's managed by the Shetland Amenity Trust and visitors can explore a marine life centre, gift shop, smiddy and that recreated radar hut that was used in the wartime. Also present at Sumbrahide are the offices of the RSPB, so the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and their job is to monitor the marine life and the the wildlife in the area, not just at Sumbrahide, but Shetland as a whole. So Sumbrahide really provides a kind of good all-round experience. It's the perfect recipe of wildlife, geology and archaeology, there used to be a, an Iron Age fort that stood up there too, so it's a, a very, it's been, a, it's always been an important place throughout Shetland's history. And the area itself is made up of sandstone, so the the cliffs at Sumbrahide are sandstone, so it provides good, um, good opportunities for the seabirds to to find a kind of nook or a cranny, to um, breed, to have their bring up their young. And the, some of the outlying um, rocks or stacks are also home to some very noisy guillemot colonies. So it's it's fantastic to go and, and spend a bit of time there. So whether you have half an hour to kill before catching a flight, it's just a, a few miles from the airport, or you've got a whole afternoon to while away, it's um, definitely worth going just to, to check out the comical puffins if nothing else. Now another really good way to get a good get some good walks in is by visiting some of our archaeological sites and my favourites that incorporate both archaeology and walking are Musa Brock, obviously, 
my favourite, Colswick Brock, and the only walk that I featured on here today where you actually can't see the sea. So that's Stanydale Temple. So Shetland's combination of both geographical location, its geology and the, the climate just gives rise to a really distinct and unique natural landscape. We lie at 60 degrees north, so we sit where, where Scotland meets Scandinavia and this invisible latitude line that passes through Shetland um, sweeps through the South Mainland kind of metaphorically slicing Shetland in two. And one of the places that this invisible line passes through is Musa, which is an uninhabited island on Shetland's east coast, and it's home to the Musa Broch. The island itself was once home to a thriving community, and at one time, 11 families eked out a, a meagre living from its fertile soils. It's... Um, in the South Mainland of Shetland, so in Shetland terms, it's quite was quite a fertile area. But as as was the case with with everywhere in Shetland in the past, thinking back maybe to the nineteenth century and and before then, it was it was difficult. It was a subsistence way of life. You were living living from the land, and it's very difficult to grow at sixty degrees north. Um. But 11 families lived in Musa at one time and it's it's a small island. It's only about a mile and a half long by a mile wide. And today the Musa boat operate daily excursions, daily trips into the island. Um, they're actually, they just opened at the weekend. So they're started their summer season again and they do these kind of daily trips that go in for a few hours every day, they'll drop you off and you have um, a few hours to walk around the island, do the island circular, or you can just walk to the, the broch and back. So visitors to Musa can experience an abundance of wildlife, bird seals, and the infamous spectacle of storm petrels returning to nest within the broch walls if you do the evening midsummer tours into the island so those are definitely worth checking out as well if you're here around midsummer but Musa is most famous for its broch and it's the best preserved broch in the world it recently won best broch in the world in a competition that was hosted by the Caithness Broch Project and it's it's rightly so it's an impressive massive structure it stands at about 13 meters tall and it really dominates the landscape of the island and last week i spoke about archaeology but i'm very aware that a few of the places that i've spoken about today or that i'm speaking about today are brochs so in case you missed last week's show i'll just recap what a broch is for anybody who may not know so in simple terms, a broch is a 2,000-year-old round tower built in the mid-Iron Age and they are unique to the north and west of Scotland and archaeologists are still not agreed on what their purpose was. What we do know is that they have a unique construction. They were built with a double wall given an inner 
an outer wall with a, a staircase in between the two walls that leads to the top. So Musaf, for example, you can go up this 2,000 year old staircase and stand on the top of the brock at 13 metres high. So it's really impressive. We know that there were about 120 brock sites in Shetland alone and many of these would have exceeded 10 metres in height. Um, the brochs were really cleverly engineered and we see this at Musa, probably see this the best at Musa. They were constructed, as I said, with these inner and outer walls and they used long slabs um, of stone laid between the inner and outer wall which allowed a greater height without the risk of the building collapsing. And archaeologists, again, constant debates about the brochs just in general. And they still debate whether or not they would have had a roof. Some archaeologists believe that, of course, yes, they did, definitely they had a roof. And others said, no, 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 don't be silly, there's no roof on a broch. So we don't know if they would have had a broch. Um, generally, when you see pictures of them like recreated, reconstructed, then generally they are illustrated with a roof, but that certainly is no indicator as to whether or not they did. So I'll leave that to your <laughs> imagination. And interestingly, Brochs had no windows and generally they only had one door. And it's been suggested that animals would have been kept on the ground floor of the Brock and that people would have lived on the first floor. And we see um, in some Brochs a scarcement ledge, which is an archaeological term for a stone ledge. And we see these in many Brock structures, including at Musa, and this is thought to have supported kind of an internal wooden scaffolding that would have held up multiple levels for occupancy and or storage. But again, this is something that's that's debated by archaeologists. We know that w there wasn't much timber available in Shetland, so big question marks kind of surround the idea of having this wooden scaffolding within the broch, because where would all the wood come from? So lots and lots of unanswered questions. But they are unique to Scotland, and... They just they remain to this day just shrouded in mystery. We don't know if they were defensive, were they offensive, or were they just prestigious shows of grandeur. We we don't know. They could have been community halls, they could have been grain stores, they could have been the home of high ranking um chieftains. Maybe <laughs> most likely we'll never know, but we can always come up with ideas and suggestions and imagine what they might have looked like. And another thing that's interesting actually about brochs is that in general they're always in view of another broch and another and so on. So they may have been used to send out smoke signals. Um, from Musa directly across the sound, the Burland broch, which is now collapsed in itself and many of the stones have been used for building other structures. But Burland would have mirrored Musa in size and scale. So these two would have perhaps been connected in some way and part of perhaps a, a greater broch network. But one thing is clear, brochs, especially brochs like Musa, 
were definitely not built by a people who wished to remain hidden away unseen. Their prominent placing appears deliberate, they dominate skylines, cliff tops, and just the wider landscape in general. But for what reason remains completely unclear, and today Brochs definitely ask more questions than they answer. But Brochs aside, there's so much more to Musa than just the archaeology. There is outstanding wildlife, geology, stories of smugglers and shipwrecks, and just the real opportunity to get off the beaten track. Um, you're, you're visiting an uninhabited island, there's no amenities there, it's just you and nature, and hopefully Rodney at the Musa boat will take you back to the mainland. So definitely a trip to Musa should be high on the agenda for any visitor to Shetland and any local alike. So the next walk that fe- the next walk that features archaeology is another brock. This one is Colswick Brock, which is set in the West Mainland. And for this one you drive towards Colswick and you just keep going in the road until you see um you'll see a sign but you'll also see the iconic red British phone box which looks totally out of place in the middle of nowhere. So you'd park up here and just follow a a track out to the broch. So just at the start of the the kind of track that leads to the broch, you come to the Colswick Chapel which sits um just beyond the the gate that you go through to join the road. And it's a a tiny Methodist kirk that still holds services, although not weekly anymore. But they do have an annual carol evening, which is a firm favourite for people across Shetland who want to kind of soak up some of that Christmas magic in the, the tiny chapel at Colswick. And the walk itself out to Colswick Brock is moderately easy and it passes through moorland that skirts past the Loch Sothers there before um, winding its way up the hill where the Broch and Loch Broch come into full view and it's worth on the way out taking a little detour down to the abandoned township of Sothersty uh, or Sothersty as it appears on, on your OS map and this is where the houses the houses here they're now just roofless ruins but it's definitely worth just going down and having a look at the, the kind of um, community that was there and also walk that piece of coastline. It's, really, it's a really nice piece of coastline too. So you've kind of got two options. You can follow the coastline around to the Brock or you can just head like right over the hill following the, the, the track. Um, and despite the track that you're taking across the, the moorland, the landscape really doesn't disappoint. It's, it's really dramatic, it's rugged, and it's just amazing to think about the people that lived out here and how they were um, kind of trying to eke out a living on this pretty windswept plateau. You'll see also when you're walking out um, small stone structures called planty crubs. They're kind of round or, or rectangular shaped. And these were used... The, the interesting thing that, that marks them out is that they never have doors. So a planty crub 
is a stone enclosure without a door and this was to keep sheep and rabbits out so that these were structures for growing young um, kale plants or young cabbage plants so if you're wondering why you see small structures without doors then that's what those are for but at the end of the track the final ascent up to the brock is really steep you pass over a stone causeway that slices the lock of brock in half and this last leg really doesn't disappoint although your legs may protest and you'll get a bit of throbbing knee burn but it's um, fantastic once you reach the top and you get to the, the brock. Halfway up the hill you'll see the ruins of another croft house, a kind of traditional house that's also sitting in ruin and it's been made from uh, stones that would have originally come from the brock because the brock here at Colswick, like many others, has collapsed and a lot of the, the stone that was used in its construction has been used to build um, other structures like the house halfway down the hill. But despite this, the walls can be clearly seen and they're still kind of standing at several metres high in places. There's impressive ramparts and internal chambers that you that are still visible and it has a massive triangular lintel stone above what would have been the original doorway, which is still visible. So it's all in all, it's the perfect place for a picnic. Now, finally, to end, I'm just going to move inland and away from the sea and we will go to Stenydell Temple which is another walk associated with archaeology and Stenydell Temple is set in the heart of Shetlands West Mainland and I did speak about Stenydell last week on the podcast when I spoke about archaeology so this is a, a short walk which will take visitors into Neolithic Shetland and back in time some 4,000 years. So it's a heel-shaped megalithic structure or temple as it's kind of, as it says on the road sign. Um, But it's the only one of its kind in Shetland and again, kind of like the Brochs, it remains shrouded in mystery and it's kind of tucked away into an empty landscape. There's no houses or anything nearby so you, you really feel like you're getting away from the world when you're at Stenydale. But as I said, archaeologists are still unsure what the purpose of this Neolithic slash Bronze Age structure was. The heel-shaped facade or heel-shaped front of the building is similar to um, other Neolithic structures that we find at Islesborough in Dalton and Punswater in North Maven. But the size is totally incomparable to anything else on a local level meaning that the function of this 4,000 year old wonder remains untold so I suppose for me one of the best things about Stenydale is that its purpose remains locked only in the imagination of those who visit and I always think that that's one of the the nice things about any archaeology is there's so much of it that's open to interpretation and it just offers you the opportunity to just stop and think and imagine and make up stories about who you think stayed there and 
and the lives that they led. It's you get a real sense of that at at Stenydale. And one of the fascinating things about Stenydale is its connection to equinoxes and the path of the sun as it moves through the sky. So on the approaches to Stenydale, there are two standing stones that kind of demark an a like a passage of sorts where the sun's rays will pass through these two stones and right through the door of the temple uh, and onto the back wall of the temple at sunrise on the equinox. And this is something that I was really keen to experience. So I went on a showery March morning with a a good friend. Thank you again, Jim. (laughs) Um, So we went to, to meet the dawn of the equinox at Stenydale. And I think everybody thought we were mad, but it was really great fun. And it was honestly just an otherworldly experience. The, that moment as dawn arrives and the world just seems to stop. And just for a, a moment in time, everything just falls silent. The birds, it felt like the birds even stopped singing. The sheep grew quiet and the wind just disappeared. It was just... None of these things probably didn't happen except in our imaginations, but it really did feel like they did. Um, it just felt like everything was suspended as the, the first ray of sunlight made contact with the earth. And, and it did. It was incredible. When the sun rose, then that beam, that beam of light came right through that two standing stones, right in the doorway of the temple. And it was, it was incredible. So if you're here at the Equinox, I'd highly recommend doing that. But um, yeah, that's uh, possibly not going to be something that everyone can do. But our ancestors were definitely tuned into the cycles of the earth and the land. They were sowing the seeds at this time of year, well, at the time of the year of the equinox, they were they were waiting on that light to return so they could sow the seeds. They always had one eye skyward, eye in the weather, and the other was busy tilling the soil or and just willing growth to happen. So it was just it was just really um it was just really nice to kind of to visit there and think about how those early farmers were just super tuned into that kind of cyclical way of life. But definitely it um, brought out the daydreamer within me. (laughs) So I think on, on that note, before I start daydreaming about Neolithic farmers anymore, I think that on that note, I think you have heard quite enough from me for one week and I hope that you have got some inspiration for some walks that you can do while you're here. So just to recap, we spoke about um, a trip to Aeschnes and the, the kind of exploring the, the Aeschnes volcano and we spoke about the national nature reserves that you can visit so you can go and see Nos, Hermanes and Sombrahead and then we spoke about some of the the archaeology that you can explore on a walk. So we thought about Musa and Colswick and Stanydale. So I will say 
goodbye for today and I hope that wherever you're listening from you have enjoyed today's show. Thank you for listening. This podcast can only be made possible by my supporters on Patreon. So a huge thank you to all my patrons. If you would like to support me in bringing you more of these shows, you can sign up and become a patron. You will find details about how to sign up in the show notes below or at www.patreon.com and just search Shetland with Laurie. And remember, you can find more on Instagram and give me a follow at Shetland with Laurie. So thank you once again for listening and we will see you here next time. And in the meantime, safe and happy travels. <laughs>